Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Jeffrey M. Verdon Law Group. For more than 20 years, I've been entrusting my personal estate planning and asset protection to the Jeffrey M. Verdon Law Group, and you should too. Go to jmvlaw.com by July 15th and mention my name and you'll get 50% off your first consultation. All the U.S. stock market indexes finished the first week of June in the red thanks to a broad-based sell-off on Friday. The Dow Jones was down just under 350 points, which I think is just over 1%. The S&P 500 had an even worse day. It sank by 1.6%. Not as much carnage for the small caps. Russell 2000 was down 0.8%, but not the case for the big cap tech stocks. The Nasdaq was down by 2.7% on the day and the riskier Nasdaq stocks, the ones that are owned by Kathy Wood in the ARK Innovation ETF, that ETF was down 5.4% on the day. And it wasn't just the stock market that got beaten up on the week. Bonds were also down. Yields were higher across the curve. In fact, the yield on the 30-year closed solidly above 3% at 3-spot 114. 10-year, though, just below 3%, two-spot 957. But if you look at a chart, it looks like yields are headed significantly higher from here. The U.S. dollar was also slightly higher on the week, but just barely. The opposite with gold, a slight decline in the price of gold on the week. Gold still managed to close the week above 1850 at about 1852. However, gold stocks actually closed out the week with some gains, bucking the overall trend in the stock market. Now, maybe this is a sign that those stocks have finally bottomed. A bottom is long overdue. Now, I won't claim a bottom for sure until I see some follow through. So we'll see what happens in the gold mining stocks next week, but at least some encouraging action in gold stocks. Now, the reason the week ended up positive, it was all Thursday's gain. We had a big gain. The GDX was up about 5% on the day. The juniors GDXJ up about 6%. So a very strong day. It was all on a $20 move up in gold. We reversed that entire move up today. And so between Thursday and Friday, Gold itself went nowhere, but we still saw big rallies in gold and silver mining stocks because the stocks only gave up about a third of what they gained on Thursday, even though gold itself gave up everything that it gained. So that, again, is an encouraging sign that we're seeing some underlying strength in these gold mining stocks. Now, remember, on my last podcast, I talked about the unexpected weakness in the mining stocks following the news that Goldfields was buying Yamana. And I thought that was very strange reaction and that ultimately that news was not only bullish for those two companies, but bullish for the entire sector. And since that podcast, we have seen a rally in gold and silver stocks. So again, maybe we've seen a bottom. But, you know, the strongest market on the week was the crude oil market. I mean, that chart looks incredibly strong In fact, it looked like oil had closed the week above $120 a barrel at $120.30. But now I'm looking at my screen and I see a settlement of $118.87. I'm not really sure which is correct because I saw it at above $120 for several hours. And now that I'm doing this podcast later in the evening on Friday, and I'm looking at that settle. So I'm not really sure if it's accurate or not. But if we did close above 120, it is the highest close on a weekly basis since just before the financial crisis of 2008. Now, when the price of oil was above $120 a barrel in the early summer of 2008, it didn't stay there very long. In fact, oil spiked up to those levels and then started coming down. And then when we got the financial crisis, oil plunged back to around $30 a barrel. So Americans never really got a taste 
of $120 oil. They're about to get a mouthful of it now. In fact, I don't think oil is going to stay at $120 a barrel for long. I think it's headed higher. I think at some point over the summer, we're going to be at $150 a barrel oil, maybe even before the end of the month of June. That's how strong this chart looks. And you got to ask yourself this question. Where would the price of oil be right now if we were not rapidly depleting the strategic petroleum reserve? Because we are selling all of this oil into the market. Yet despite that selling, the price is going up anyway. Now, if that supply was not there, obviously the price of oil would already be higher than $120 a barrel. The question is, what's going to happen when we finish this drawdown of the strategic petroleum reserves? Are they going to authorize even more? Are we going to deplete our strategic reserves down to zero where we have nothing saved for a rainy day? And then what? Because at some point, we're going to run out of reserves, either because we decide we've sold enough and we're going to hold on to what we got, or we just deplete everything. But at some point, the price is going to go up much, much more, and we're going to be a lot more vulnerable to a real supply shock because we're not going to have any strategic reserves. Now, based on the increase in the price of crude this week, I expect gas stations to be raising prices again over the weekend. So Americans are going to be looking at record high gas prices across the country this weekend and then even higher next week. And what's amazing is you still have so many people out there talking about how inflation has peaked, how the Fed is already winning the battle against inflation based on what evidence? Certainly just looking at the price of oil, we've done nothing to combat inflation. In fact, if you look at actual evidence that's out there, we are further behind the inflation curve than we were when the Fed began its fight. And that's because it's a fake fight. The Fed is talking, but they're not acting. They are dragging their feet on both rate hikes and quantitative tightening. Now, quantitative tightening may have started. I noticed that the balance sheet was down about $30 billion in the most recent week, and I think it was down by a similar amount in the week before. So maybe the Federal Reserve has, in fact, started quantitative tightening. The only question is, how long can they keep it up? How long before they call it off and go back to quantitative easing? Because that is ultimately going to happen. And the way that you know that's going to happen is because nobody in Congress is talking about major tax increases for the middle class. Nobody is talking about significant cuts to government spending, including middle class entitlements like Social Security and Medicare, because that's what would be required in order for the Fed to actually follow through on its commitment to shrink the balance sheet. Because after all, if the Fed is going to shrink the balance sheet, how is the government going to sell all of these bonds if it continues to spend the same amount of money? It doesn't have tax revenues, so it has enormous budget deficits. And if the Federal Reserve is not only financing those deficits, but adding to those deficits. Remember, the Federal Reserve is going to go from the biggest buyer of treasuries to the biggest seller of treasuries. So instead of being a customer of the Treasury, the Federal Reserve is going to be a competitor. They're now going to be selling the same type of bonds that the Treasury is selling. Now, even if they're not officially selling them, even if they're just refusing to roll them over, it's a distinction without a difference because now the Treasury has to sell extra bonds to cover the bonds that the Fed is no longer rolling over. So there is no way to do this without driving interest rates through the roof, which is something that we can't afford. So the only alternative is to replace the Federal Reserve with the taxpayer. So we need to have more taxes or we have to cut spending. But since neither of those is under consideration, that quantitative tightening can't happen. They can start, but they can't complete it. In fact, that's also how you know that we're not going to make any headway in this inflation fight because raising interest rates again is not enough and the Fed is not raising interest rates enough anyway because they have to make interest rates higher than the inflation rate. They need real interest rates to be positive and we're not going to get anywhere close to positive. We're not even going to get close to zero real interest rates. They're going to be very negative, but we need to reduce the money supply dramatically 
to offset all of the expansion of the money supply that's already taken place. Because if the government has been relying on inflation as its source of funding, if that's how all this government is being paid for, well, if we're going to stop creating inflation, then we need an alternative way of paying for government. Or in the alternative, we have to reduce the size of government because there's no way to pay for it. Because we were paying for it through inflation. And if we're not going to substitute legitimate taxation, then we got to cut government spending. You know, all these politicians, including President Biden, who was on television again today, talking about the jobs data, which I'll get to later, also talking about inflation. And he was wrong. He's talking about how he's committed to fighting inflation. Well, you can't be committed to fighting inflation unless you're also committed to cutting government spending or raising taxes, not on the rich, because that won't work on the middle class. And Joe Biden says he is committed not to raise taxes on anybody that makes under $400,000 a year. And he's certainly not going to cut any government spending. And so he's not going to reduce inflation. Again, the public has to understand that there is no free lunch, that any government we have, we have to pay for. The government doesn't support the people. The people must support the government. Right now, we're supporting the government with inflation. That's the tax that we're paying. Prices are going up because the government is spending all this money and not collecting taxes. So the only way to get relief from the inflation tax is to either get relief on the cost of government by having the government cut spending or we have to pay higher taxes as a trade-off for lower inflation. So all these politicians that claim they want lower inflation, unless they also claim they want higher taxes or less government spending, they are lying because they are relying on inflation to substitute for taxation. They are relying on inflation to continue to pretend that the public is getting something for nothing. But we're not getting it for nothing. We're paying for it through inflation. And in fact, one of the things that President Biden said was that at least the U.S. economy is now facing this inflation fight in a position of strength. And supposedly we got that strength as a result of his policies. Well, the opposite is actually true. Not only is the U.S. economy not in a strong position to fight inflation, we are in a weak position. In fact, we have never been in a weaker position to fight inflation than we are right now. Why is that? Well, how do you fight inflation? As I just said, raise interest rates a lot and cut the money supply. But the U.S. economy is more addicted to cheap money now and low interest rates than ever before. How can you fight inflation when we have so much debt? How can you raise interest rates high enough to fight inflation when there's so much debt and nobody can afford to pay an interest rate high enough to effectively fight inflation? And when you are running record budget deficits, how do you pull the rug out from under that? How do you fight inflation, meaning shrinking the money supply, when the government is running the biggest budget deficits in its history. Sure, they're slightly smaller than they were at their absolute peak during the COVID pandemic, but relative to where they've been historically and relative to our current level of taxation, we have enormous budget deficits. And so how do we fight inflation with such big deficits when fighting inflation is going to require the elimination of those deficits? It's never going to happen. So contrary to the assurance that President Biden gave the nation, our nation has never been in a weaker position to fight inflation, which is why we're not going to fight inflation, because inflation would win. So rather than lose a fight, the Fed's going to surrender without a fight. But probably the most ridiculous lie that Biden told to support his nonsensical theory that the U.S. economy has never been in better shape to handle an inflation fight was that American families themselves were in such great shape. According to Biden, and I'm not making this up, he said, and I quote, families are carrying less debt and their savings are up since I took office and more Americans are feeling financially comfortable. That is pure BS. First of all, families are not carrying less debt. Credit card debt just exploded to an all-time record high. And as far as savings being up, they just plunged to the lowest level since the 2008 financial crisis. Now, maybe Biden's handlers haven't given him any recent memos on the economy. Yes, at one point, 
earlier in his presidency, savings were up, but only because the government handed out stimulus checks. But the only reason those stimulus checks didn't bounce is because the Federal Reserve printed up all this money, and that inflation is one of the reasons that prices have gone up. But of course, families have already exhausted all of that money, and now they're stressed out. How Biden can say that more Americans are feeling financially comfortable? Why does President Biden think his approval rating is so low? It's low because families are not comfortable. They're stressed out because they're broke. It's not enough just to create wealth. It's essential to protect your wealth from unforeseen lawsuits, creditors and predators, including your own government, seizing your assets because you support the wrong political party. Every year, more than 15 million lawsuits are filed in the United States. Many of these lawsuits are frivolous, using lawfare to try to enrich the suing party, knowing you're likely settle rather than incur the expense and aggravation. But imagine your hard-earned assets were held in legal structures that prevented these pesky lawsuits while denying creditors easy access to your assets. Remove the profit from the pursuit and most of these lawsuits will never happen. These days, having a sound and effective integrated estate planning and risk mitigation strategy is essential for affluent investors and business owners to secure their legacies. When total protection is wanted, and believe me, it's always wanted, reach out to Jeffrey Verdon and the Jeffrey M. Verdon Law Group. They've been protecting and securing client legacies for decades. But you must act now before a claim arises or asset protection will not work. So don't delay. Contact the law firm today for a consultation. Remember to mention my name and get 50% off on your initial consultation. With decades of experience assisting affluent investors and business owners in securing their legacies, my personal law firm, the Jeffrey Verdon Law Group, can make all the difference. In fact, they help structure a trust for me that completely avoids the estate tax. So all the assets in that trust pass on to my heirs estate tax-free. That's more for my family and less for Uncle Sam. So contact the Jeffrey Verdon Law Group by July 15th, mention my name, Peter Schiff, and you'll get a 50% discount off your initial consultation. That's jmvlaw.com. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night, and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. And of course, it's not just President Biden who's wrong on inflation. His secretary, the Treasury, Janet Yellen, is not only wrong about inflation, she just admitted that she was wrong about inflation. It's about time that she admitted to getting something wrong because she pretty much has gotten everything wrong. And so she has a lot of stuff that she needs to admit to. But at least this week, she admitted to being wrong about transitory inflation. Remember, she was an official spokesman for the administration, and she continued to repeat the Fed's lie that inflation was transitory. Of course, ironically, Janet Yellen is responsible for a lot of the inflation that we are experiencing, because not only was she the chair of the Federal Reserve. She was a member of the Federal Reserve for a long time. In fact, she was vice chair before she became chair. But even when she was chairman of the Federal Reserve, for the first two years that she was chairman, she kept interest rates at zero. And then remember, when she raised interest rates eventually by 25 basis points, she waited an entire year until after Donald Trump had been elected president to raise them again for a second time. And then I believe the only reason she raised them a few more times was because she knew that she was on the way out, Trump was on the way in. Had Obama been reelected, she may have never raised them. It may have been one and done, who knows? But she was raising them with Trump. But even with those Trump rate hikes, when Janet Yellen finished her tenure, she left interest rates at one and a quarter percent. That's it. So she was responsible for holding interest rates too low. So it's not just that she 
got inflation wrong. She helped get inflation going or keep it going. She took the inflation baton from Ben Bernanke, who took it from Alan Greenspan, and she then passed that baton to Jerome Powell, but she has her fingerprints all over this inflation. That's probably one of the reasons she wanted to pretend that it was transitory. Well, now she can no longer pretend as Secretary of the Treasury. She now has to deal with the reality of inflation. And, you know, by the way, I often make this comment, but I don't even know why we have a Secretary of the Treasury at this point, because we have no Treasury. I mean, we have one, but it's bare. The country is broke. What we really have is a secretary of the debt. Janet Yellen's actual job is to make sure that people keep loaning us money, that we could keep going deeper and deeper into debt. So it's kind of like a negative treasury. But one of the ways that we repudiate that debt because we can't pay it off is by inflating it away. And that's basically what the Federal Reserve is doing. One of the goals that they have of inflation is to eliminate debt. And the U.S. government is the world's largest debtor. And so it is the primary beneficiary of inflation. And of course, there's all sorts of ways that the government benefits from inflation. That's why the Federal Reserve has been creating it. Of course, when they create inflation, they can't tell the truth. That's why they made up this nonsense story about the fact that we didn't have enough inflation, that we were in danger of having deflation. And so we needed to have more inflation, that we were below target, and the Fed needed to pursue a policy that would increase the inflation rate. It wasn't because the economy needed more inflation. We needed it like a hole in the head. We would have benefited from a falling cost of living and a rising standard of living. But the government had all sorts of reasons for creating inflation. It just didn't want to level with the American public as to why. They couldn't say we need inflation because we have to sustain these asset bubbles. We need inflation because the government needs to keep spending money and we can't afford to do it if we have to raise taxes. We don't want to cut spending and we can't let interest rates go up because we have so much debt we can't afford to pay. There's no way they could tell the truth. So they made up this ridiculous lie about inflation being too low and the economy needing more of it. And the only thing more ridiculous than the lie itself was that so many people in the private sector actually believed it. Although speaking of the private sector, we had some prominent private sector voices raising some warning signs about the economy. First of all, you have Jamie Dimon, who is the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, very high profile guy. He was talking about an economic hurricane on the horizon. So he is concerned about what's coming. And in fact, he's right to be concerned, but I still think he's sugarcoating it because this is not just a hurricane. This is the hurricane. This is a cat five monster that's going to take no prisoners. In fact, it should be so obvious just how bad this is going to be. It's amazing that people can't see it coming. And I used to think the same thing about the housing bubble and why nobody could see the financial crisis coming. This is so much worse. The problem is so much bigger. Why people can't understand the rock and a hard place that the Fed is between when it comes to recession and inflation. This is exactly what I've been warning about from the beginning. I've known from the beginning that where we're about to be is exactly where we were headed the entire time. That's why I've been warning about this so loudly and so strongly because of how bad it's ultimately going to be. And because it was going to be so bad, we had tremendous incentive to keep kicking the can down the road. Well, we can only do that so long as the road had low inflation. So long as everybody can pretend that inflation was under 2% and that we could all pretend that we needed more, the Fed could get away with it. But now that it's blown up, that we've got inflation of nearly 10%, not just here, but all around the world, we have record inflation and no central banker can continue to pretend that we need more inflation, but they're powerless to take it away. They can talk tough about fighting inflation, but only because they can't actually fight it. And when the market starts to come to terms with this, it can't be anything but a complete unmitigated disaster. Jamie Dimon wants to call it an economic hurricane. He's right. It's just a much bigger storm than the one he imagines. But it's not just Jamie Dimon. Elon Musk also 
stating that he has a super bad feeling about the economy. Super bad. And in fact, he feels so bad that not only is he ordering a hiring freeze at Tesla, but he wants to reduce 10% of the staff. And he's not the only CEO that's talking about this. CEO of Coinbase said the same thing. They're doing a hiring freeze. So are the Winklevoss twins over at Gemini. They're now talking about a crypto winter. Yes, this could be the ultimate crypto winter from which there is never going to be a spring. It's going to be permanent winter as far as I'm concerned. And it's going to be a blizzard. By the way, as I am talking, I mean, Bitcoin is still holding out just below 30,000, trading around 29,500. But you know, what's been interesting too, while Bitcoin has been hanging on to the 30,000 level, it hasn't really gone much below or above it. All the altcoins have been losing value. The total value of all the cryptocurrencies, and now there's 19,728 of them, is just over 1.2 trillion But Bitcoin now comprises 46.3% of that market cap. Not too long ago, it almost hit 40%. So it's the other coins that are going down beneath the surface. And you just don't necessarily see it if you're just looking at the top at Bitcoin. You don't notice what's going on below. In fact, Ether has been losing ground against Bitcoin as I'm recording this. Ethereum is at about 1760 So it's decisively below 2000 And it looks like it's headed much lower to me. I'm surprised, actually, that the cryptocurrencies have held up as well as they have. But they're not going to defy gravity for long. In fact, it's interesting that even though we had a big rally in tech stocks, we didn't have a rally at all in crypto. So crypto didn't go up with tech. But it looks to me like tech's about to roll over again and get hit. And you know what? Cryptos are going to be not only part of that collapse, they're going to be leading the decline. But getting back to these announcements from Coinbase and Gemini about a hiring freeze and layoffs, that's exactly what I've been warning was going to happen in this space. Because I said all of these companies that were formed around crypto are going to prove to be malinvestments. These are misallocations of capital. None of this would have happened but for the 0% interest rate environment that we were in. And it's not just the blockchain sector. There are a lot of companies that were born during this era that are going to die when the era ends. They're only alive as long as the cheap money is flowing. The only reason they have employees is because they're able to pay them by selling stock to investors. They're not paying them from the profits that they're generating because they're not generating any profits. And you know what a lot of people still don't seem to understand when it comes to recessions is that the recessions are the free market's way of correcting imbalances and fixing mistakes that are made during the artificial booms that precede them. So it's the boom that's the problem. It's the bust that's the solution to the problem. Now, if we have legitimate economic booms, well, those don't have to bust. But when you have an artificial boom that's created by the Federal Reserve with artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing, those booms inevitably always bust. So every time the Fed engineers a phony recovery, They sow the seeds of the next recession, except as they have to use more and more monetary heroin to create that phony recovery, we have a bigger and bigger recession when the drugs wear off. And that's why we're facing the mother of all recessions. But one of the things that happens during a phony boom is companies get created that are not really economically viable. They just look viable temporarily until that mistake is revealed when the cheap money ultimately is withdrawn. And so what happens is a lot of those jobs get eliminated during the recession. But that's actually a good thing. Now, am I happy that people lose their jobs? No, I'm not happy about it. But they need to lose their jobs if the jobs they have are not economically viable, if they're not productive. Because labor is a resource, just like land, just like capital, and it's scarce. And we need to put labor to its highest and best use, meaning we need workers using their labor productively. They have to be employed by companies that are generating profits, not companies that are generating losses. Because what does a profit mean? When you are running a company and you earn a profit, 
the market is telling you that you are doing a good job in satisfying the needs and desires of consumers because you are taking the scarce resources, which includes labor, capital, land, and you are organizing them in a way that is efficient because you're able to produce a product and then sell that product at a price that's higher than it costs you to make it. That means the people who are buying it value that product more than the cost of the resources that went into producing it and you're doing a good thing. You are adding value to society and you are being rewarded with a profit. What does a loss mean? A loss means that you're taking these scarce resources that could be used for something else and you're combining them to produce a product that the people don't want. They're not willing to pay a price that's more than it costs you to produce the product or provide the service. So you are destroying value. You should not be using those resources. You should go out of business and free up those resources so some other entrepreneur can have a more effective use for them. So that's what happens with labor. If I come up with some cockamamie plan, right, some crazy business idea, and I'm gonna produce some BS product that nobody really wants, but I convince a bunch of investors to give me money so I can start my company up, and now I hire a bunch of people, I am wasting their time. I am wasting their labor because they are not adding value to society. They could be doing something else, but they're not doing something else because I outbid competitors for my stupid idea that only exists because of the Fed monetary policy. So the sooner this crazy business can shut down and free up that labor, now those workers can go work someplace else where they may actually be helping to produce something that people actually want, adding value instead of destroying value. You have a lot of people right now that are working for companies and their labor is destroying value. Since nobody cares about value anymore because it's all one big pyramid. The VCs invest in these companies and all they want to do is pump up the share price so they can sell out at a higher price to some other investor. Whether or not the companies actually add value is immaterial. No one gives a damn if these companies are making a profit. In fact, a lot of times if the companies make a profit, nobody wants to invest in them because somehow that's an impediment to growing the top line if you have to make a profit. So they want losses. They're actually rewarded for losing money. So a lot of people are going to get fired in this recession, and that is a good thing. If you try to prevent these layoffs, if you try to trap people in non-productive jobs, you are ultimately undermining the standard of living of the country. Lots of countries have made this mistake when you talk about zombie companies, companies that are kept in business by the government. A lot of times the government does this because they want to keep people in their jobs, but they shouldn't be in those jobs. They are in the wrong jobs. Let the free market reallocate them to the right jobs. Now, I understand during that transition, you lose one job, you have to get another job. Yeah, that might suck for the worker, but unfortunately, that's life. Nobody is guaranteed a job forever. You know, that's how a free market works. If you work for a company, if the company can't generate a profit, well, your job's going to go away. You got to find a company that's able to operate at a profit. That's why profits are a good thing. You know, you've got all these socialists who are anti-profit. Profit is one of the most important parts of a market economy because without profit, how do you know if what you're doing is working? How do you know if you're actually adding value to society rather than subtracting it? You know because you're making a profit. If you're operating a business at a profit, the market is telling you you're doing the right thing. Do more of it. When you're operating a business at a loss, the market is telling you, hey, stop what you're doing. You are destroying value. And of course, in a free market, if you're losing money, eventually you're going to stop because you're going to run out of money. That's why you don't want governments to do things because governments don't give a damn how much money they lose because it's not their money. But now that I'm talking about jobs, I guess it's a good point to transition into the May jobs report that was released earlier this morning. Now, before I get into the details of what was a stronger than expected report, I want to point out again that employment is a lagging indicator. See, it's not that employers are really smart when it comes to making economic forecasts about recessions. They generally react to a recession that already happens. They don't necessarily see the recession coming in advance 
and prepare for it. You know, especially when all the economists and the private sector and the government are saying everything is great, nothing to worry about. And so businessmen are believing supposedly these experts in the economy who are reassuring everybody that everything is good. Remember, these are the same experts that said that inflation was transitory. Well, that turned out to be wrong. Well, now these same experts are saying the economy is strong. Well, that strength is even more transitory than inflation. In fact, it's the only thing that is transitory because inflation wasn't. Inflation is permanent, but it's the economic strength that was transitory. And so will these jobs. In fact, if you look at the estimate for GDP, the Atlanta Fed reduced its forecast for Q2 GDP all the way down to 1.3%. Think about that because in Q1, it was minus 1.5%. Now, if the Atlanta Fed is correct and we get a plus 1.3, and I think we're going to get a lower number than that, but even if 1.3 is correct, technically we're not in a recession because the economy didn't contract for two consecutive quarters. But if you measure the economy over those two quarters, the first half of 2022, the entire economy will have contracted because when you're down 1.5% and then up 1.3%, the net is a drop of about 0.2%. That's a decline. I mean, if we had a 0.1% decline in Q1 and a 0.1% decline in Q2, it would be the same thing for the whole six months, yet that would officially be a recession. And what we have now would technically not qualify, but it's the same thing. But my point is they're talking about how strong this economy is. We have this rip-roaring economy. We have this booming economy. It's so strong that it can easily withstand higher interest rates. Meanwhile, Q1 was negative 1.5, and they're only forecasting a positive 1.3 for Q2, and they're probably overestimating it because nobody saw the negative Q1 print coming, just like nobody sees another negative print coming for Q2, but they can just as easily be surprised by a negative print in Q2 the way they were surprised about a negative print in Q1. Now, getting back to that jobs report, before I get into the details of the government report that came out this morning, I want to talk about the private sector report that came out yesterday. We got the ADP employment report, and that kind of set the stage for the expectations for today's report, because that one came in far below estimates. There was a consensus for 240,000 private sector jobs created in May, and instead we only created 128,000. That was way below the low end of the consensus range of expectations, which went from a low of 200,000 to a high of 330,000. And in fact, to add insult to injury, they downwardly revised the April month from up 247,000 jobs to up just 202,000. So that was a much weaker than expected report. In fact, that report might've been the reason that we had such a strong day in the gold mining stocks on Thursday. But I think that a lot of people were probably expecting a weaker than expected report this morning from the government, but we got the opposite. We got a bigger increase in employment than the estimate had been. The consensus was for 325,000 new jobs in May, and we ended up with 390,000. Now, even though this number did beat estimates, it still ended up below 400,000, which was the first time in many months that we've had a monthly number where we added fewer than 400,000 jobs. Now, maybe we've peaked. In fact, I think it's likely that we have And we're going to start to see some much weaker than expected numbers. In fact, who knows? Maybe they're going to come back and downwardly revise this estimate. The unemployment rate was expected to fall. That didn't happen. It stayed at 3.6%. There was an expectation that it would drop to 3.5%. Private sector payrolls also gained more than expected, 333,000 versus expectations for 310,000. Manufacturing, though, did disappoint. That's the most important part, I think, of the economy. They were looking for a gain of 38,000 jobs 
Instead, we gained just 18,000. The range of expectations was 30,000 to 45,000. So that was a big miss. We need more manufacturing jobs if we're going to produce more stuff. And if we're not going to produce more stuff, but we're going to keep printing more money, well, we're going to pay higher and higher prices. We did get a little bit of an uptick in labor force participation. That notched up to 62.3, still very low. Average hourly earnings rose slightly less than expected, up 0.3 versus the expectations of up 0.4. Year over year, now average hourly earnings up just 5.2%. It was 5.5% in the prior month. They expected 5.3. Now, some people might say, oh, that's good news because less wage pressures on prices. Other people might look at that as bad news for workers because wages are rising more slowly, but prices are not. And that means real wages are falling. And in fact, you know, getting back to that labor force participation rate, I do expect that participation rate to increase during the recession, which is going to put more upward pressure on the unemployment rate. Because when people are not officially part of the labor force, even though they're not working, they're not unemployed. But if people who are not looking for work decide that they want a job, now they're unemployed. And why might people who are not now working decide they need a job? Well, one, I think a lot of younger people who thought they could make a living just trading stocks and cryptocurrencies on Robinhood or someplace like that, I think they're going to lose all their money. And now by necessity, they're going to have to look for jobs. And so they're going to be out there in the labor force unemployed. And I think a lot of older people who are retired. And, you know, a lot of people retired early during the pandemic. They figured, hey, I'm not going to work. It's a good time to retire. And especially since people's stock portfolios were doing so well, you know, in these FANG stocks or these other growth stocks that a lot of people were conned into buying. So retirees probably felt that they could afford to retire because their nest egg got a lot bigger during the pandemic. Well, now that that's a rotten egg, they've lost a ton of money. Not only did they lose a lot of money in the stock portion of their portfolio, they also lost a lot of money in the bond portion of their portfolio if they even had bonds. Some people just went all in on stocks. But even those who thought they were playing it safe got clobbered in what they thought was safe. So their portfolios have gone down. So they're not as rich as they thought they were. But at the same time, their cost of living has gone way up, especially energy, food, rent, insurance, health care. So older people now have less wealth, but more expenses. That may mean that they have to get a job. Maybe they thought they had enough money to retire, given how much money they had and what they assumed their cost of living would be. Well, now they have a lot less money, but a much higher cost of living. How are they going to bridge the gap? Well, they got to go get a job again. So I think a lot of older people are going to come out of retirement. They're going to be looking for work. A lot of younger people, they're going to now be looking for work. Are they going to find work? Not in a recession. So the unemployment rate is going to go way up. So all the people who are looking at this jobs report and thinking, aha, this confirms that we have a strong economy. We don't have to worry about a recession. Jamie Dimon, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Elon Musk, I don't know why he has these bad feelings. Everything is great. If you are drawing that conclusion from this report, you are wrong. You are driving, looking in the rearview mirror while being oblivious to everything that is clearly ahead of you. It's only a matter of time before we're going to start to see some horrific non-farm payroll reports. But by the time we get them, it's going to be too late to forecast a recession because it'll mean we're already deep in one. In fact, if you look at the JOLTS report that came out earlier in the week, even though it matched the consensus estimate of 11.4 million jobs, it was a pretty big decline from the record 11.855 million from the previous month. So maybe we've topped out in the number of open jobs. And maybe as the reality of recession rears its head, a lot of these jobs that are currently available are going to disappear. And we're going to start to see a big decline in the number of available jobs as we start to see an increase in the number of unemployed workers. Now, while the jobs number did come out stronger than expected, at least the government number, almost all the other economic data that came out during the week was weaker 
than expected. And of course, that data is more of a leading indicator than a lagging indicator. So it's a more reliable predictor of what's going to happen in the economy, not what's already happened. For example, we got the PMI numbers, uh, even though they're above 50, they came out today and they're still going down the composite index at 53.6, the service index at 53.4. Above 50 is expansion, below 50 is contraction. We're still on the north side of 50, but we're going down. I think we're going to start to see some sub 50 numbers in those PMIs soon. We got the ISM service index also today. The forecast was for 56.3. The prior month was 57.1. We came out at 55.9. Not a huge miss, but still a miss. We had a 55 handle instead of a 56 handle. But again, another weaker than expected data point. Factory orders also substantially below. This is April number. They were looking for a gain of 0.8, and that would have been a pretty big decline from the 2.2% gain from March. Well, first of all, they revised March's gain lower, still a decent number, but up 1.8%, not 2.2. But the April number came out at just 0.3%. So again, a very weak number for factory orders, again, indicative of a slowing economy, if not an economy that is in recession. Construction spending, also half of what was estimated. The consensus was for an increase of 0.4%, and we only increased by 0.2%. Now, they did make a upward revision to the prior month, so maybe that's about a push, because that was originally reported as up 0.1, and now it's up 0.3. But again, These numbers are not adjusted for inflation. So just because they spent more constructing stuff doesn't mean that they constructed more stuff. In fact, it probably doesn't mean that at all. All it means is the stuff that they did construct, it cost them more money. They're probably actually constructing less. It's just that what they are constructing is costing so much more that it pushed this number up. But, you know, there was one economic number that managed to come out above estimates. So I don't want anyone to think I'm cherry picking and just looking at the misses and ignoring the beats. We did get a beat in ISM manufacturing index for May. It was supposed to come out at 54.5, which would have been a decline from 55.4 the previous month. And instead, we went up to 56. But to me, that's the outlier. I think it's the exception that makes the rule. Overwhelmingly, the economic data continues to disappoint, continues to come out below expectations, and everybody continues to ignore it. In fact, they continue to ignore evidence that inflation is getting worse as they're ignoring evidence that the economy is getting weaker. Nobody wants to accept the reality of stagflation, yet that is the reality. And again, it's not just going to be your grandfather's 1970-style stagflation. It's going to be your great-grandparents' 1930-style depression on top of an inflation that's going to be much worse than anything that your parents or your grandparents may have experienced during the 1970s, or you may have experienced yourself if you're old enough to remember the 1970s, which is why you have to prepare. You have to invest as if it was the 1970s all over again. You know, it's not hard to figure out what investments did well during the 1970s because it's all there. You can just go online and research the best performing investments of the 1970s. And in fact, you could also look at the best performing investments of the 1930s because the gold stocks did great during the 30s and they did great during the 70s. Even though nobody thinks of the 1930s as inflationary, they think about them as deflationary, gold stocks still delivered good returns during that decade, and they returned even better returns during the 1970s. So as I said earlier in the podcast, maybe those stocks have bottomed, but people should be getting into these stocks if they're looking for the potential big winners. Obviously, there's a lot of risk when you're looking for a home run. You may strike out, uh, but I think we're going to hit this one out of the park with a grand slam when it comes to these gold stocks. So I would encourage people, maybe we're at the bottom, maybe we're not, but we're close enough. You should be buying these stocks. I think the best way to do it is through my fund, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund, 
or with a separately managed account at your Pacific Asset Management. So if you're interested in my gold fund, you know, make sure and read the prospectus. Go to europacfunds.com. You can get information on all of my funds. It's epacfunds.com, I think is a shorter URL for that one. Also, physical gold and silver did incredibly well during the 1970s. I think they'll do even better during the 2020s. If you don't have them, you should be buying them. If you already have them, well, maybe you should buy more if you don't have enough. Again, if you're not a customer with me at Shift Gold, I strongly recommend that you contact one of the representatives at Shift Gold. You can go to our website at shiftgold.com. And before the next big move up in gold and silver, uh, that you buy more gold and silver. And again, if you have a larger account and you want me to manage it, you can contact the representatives at your Pacific Asset Management. We can manage your portfolio exclusively in gold mining stocks and silver mining stocks if you want to have a very aggressive portfolio. Most of the portfolios we manage are more conservative. They consist more heavily of just good, solid, dividend-paying foreign stocks, stocks that will be a hedge, not only against a big bear market in the U.S., but against a huge decline in the U.S. dollar, which is something that I expect. These are companies that sell products that people need to buy, not products that they want to buy, products that they only buy if they have money left over after they finish buying the stuff that they need. See, if you own companies and those companies are selling things that consumers decide whether or not they want them and if they can live without them, they probably will. I want to buy things that consumers can't live without. Now, maybe they'll cut back if the price really goes up, but they won't eliminate the products or the services completely. They'll just buy less and they'll pay more. And that's fine with me as the owner of those companies because our sales are going to go up. Our dividends are going to go up. You don't want to own stock in companies where consumers can easily give up the product because they don't have any money left over after they bought all the stuff they need. They can't buy the stuff they want. So our portfolios consist of goods and services that I know consumers are going to need and they're going to buy regardless of the economic environment. Even if they buy less, they're going to pay more and our income is going to be there. Our dividends are going to be there and we're earning this income in currencies that I expect to appreciate dramatically against the U.S. dollar. So while we're still in the eye potentially of this economic hurricane that's headed our way, Now is the chance to load up your portfolios with the right kind of assets and get rid of the wrong kind of assets. All the assets that benefited during the bubble, they are going to implode as the air comes out of that bubble. And all the assets that people ignored during the bubble are the ones that are going to shine the brightest as that air comes out. 